0: Okay, we're studying the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. Uh, It's the chapter that involves the Lord's need to go down to Samaria. The way the Lord said it, he must needs go down to Samaria. And he's going down there for one person. And... Uh, that ought to teach us something. Because this whole message of the Bible is to you and to me personally. And uh, the Lord would have died for us on Calvary's cross for the one. And uh, I'm afraid that we're somewhat affected by the collective mentality. I I think I've mentioned this a number of times before. And it's because of a a failure to understand the individual in the face of verses like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And we tend to think of our relationship to God in a collective sense. Sometimes, uh, as a church denomination, the collective sense of okay, this is where we go to church, this is where we worship God, and this is what we believe, and this is the creed of our church that we follow. These are the doctrines that we believe are true. And so we have this collective sense. And a lot of times children can grow up in a home and they grow up with that collective sense because uh, they look to their mom and their dad and they sort of identify with them And whatever it is they believe. And so to a great extent, their religion is borrowed. It's not personal, it's borrowed. And um, I think a a lot of life is that way. And if a parent gets saved and becomes uh, a great leader Sometimes the children in the home will borrow the glory and the reputation of their parent as though somehow or other, because they're somebody's child, they're going to enjoy the same privileges as the parent, and nothing could be further from the truth. Every person has to have their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have to come to him for that. He has to come to us personally so that we can uh, receive this. But I think that I would be a failure as a Bible teacher if I did not Remind us all of the truth, and I'm going to tell you something. The truth is a horrible message, and it really is. It's a horrible message. And when I studied the Bible, when I finally got away from the collective um, kind of foundation that I sort of grew up with, because I was a Baptist. Southern Baptist and finally came to the end of myself and discovered that the Lord allowed that to happen so he could meet with me personally and he brought me to this book and he began to show me things that I'd never thought about before in my life. And what I discovered was that it was a horrible message. I realized I was going to die, and I had experienced coming close to that on several occasions in my life. And um, and all of us as we're growing up, we, we become familiar with family members passing away, and most of the time it's older people, but we're young, and that seems to be something so distant, so far away, we don't really think about it that much. Even as we get older, we always attend other people's funerals. We don't ever attend our own, (laughs) and so it just seems like other people that always die and that's not the way it is, folks. One of these days, we're going to die. Sure are. And in that day, we will understand in a profound way how that we're not saved because of some collective relationship with God. Because everybody's going to die alone, right by themselves. And I don't care who your parents are, I don't care what Democratic Party or Republican Party you belong to, or how many friends you have that think the way you do, there's not one of them that can raise you from the dead. And so the collective issue is totally insignificant. And so the thing that I've learned and study in this book is that it boils down to us having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Where we come to a point of realizing that the problem that we have is so bad that we have to be radically changed from everything that we ever thought Or believed was the case. We have to be radically changed away from believing those things. To finally understanding that we don't know anything. And our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And our ways are not his ways. But the thing that's so scary to me as I think about Myself and my whole life is how powerful unbelief is. I didn't realize how powerful it is. I did not realize how powerful my thoughts were to me and my way was to me and my determination to live according to my thoughts and according to my way. I did not realize how powerful it was. And I did not understand the magnitude of what the Lord meant when he said to uh, the disciples in dealing with the rich ruler in Luke 18. The disciples were puzzled, uh, totally puzzled, as to why the Lord was not excited about that rich ruler. Because in their eyes, he was an example of what a Christian would be. He was a good person. They thought of him as being a good person. Folks, this book teaches there's none good. None. You're not good. I'm not good. There's none good. So what are we if we're not good? And the Bible says evil. And that rich ruler that the disciples thought was a good man and that the Lord was going to be impressed with his testimony, the Lord said he lacks what's needed to be saved and go to heaven. And what he lacks is me. And when it comes to salvation, with men, it's impossible. Well, I'm a man. And the Lord's message from heaven is horrible. If it's left up to me, the possibility of my going to heaven is impossible. Folks, if that doesn't give us the shakes I mean, when we realize that our situation is so bad that only God, with his creative power and infinite wisdom, his providential control of all of creation, that it would take that to go up against the power of unbelief that's in us, and it's powerful. It's a powerful thing, this unbelief problem. And uh, I didn't used to realize how bad it was. But if with men it's impossible to be saved, how do we understand Mark chapter 7 where the Lord is describing the wide gate and the narrow gate? I mean, have you ever really thought about how few people are actually going to go to heaven according to the message of the Bible? Well, let me give you something to think about. Let's think about how few there be that find it. Now, do you remember Matthew 24 when the Lord was answering the question of the disciples concerning his return. And so the Lord lays out all kinds of signs to look for, signs of the times that we can look for. And um, he dedicates an answer to that question in at least three of the Gospels. And re- reality, all of it. He said it's a little something about it. But he said that as it was in the days of Noah, that's how it's going to be when I come back. Well, this morning, I decided I'd go back and <clears throat> put some thoughts on that a little bit more because I remembered several years ago reading... In Henry Morris' study Bible, something about that time period. And what you have to realize is that before the flood, there were no oceans. So the earth was not divided into continents. And so you had a solid, basically a solid... Landmass, except for rivers and maybe some lakes or pools or things like that. But you did not have oceans. You did not have seas. You didn't have that. Well, Dr. Henry Morris, who is one of the most brilliant men, I believe, uh, has lived in our lifetime at least, was a scientist and was very acquainted with numbers and how how to calculate stuff. And he calculated the exponential growth of the human race given the fact that um, we're told in Genesis chapter 6 that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took them wives as Many as they chose, and developed an explanation of all of that. How that the sons of God was technically, if you go back and read what he said, was actually a reference to the angels. They were the sons of God. But the sons of God rebelled, and a third of the heavenly host rebelled against God and became disembodied spirits. And these disembodied spirits came down in this world in an effort to foil the plan of God, which was to bring about a Savior through the seed, the promised seed. And so Satan in his strategy, because he's a counterfeiter, would try to do something to interrupt that prophecy. And so these fallen angels, and by the way, salvation is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you don't understand the similarity between demon possession and being indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, then you're missing the strategy of Satan in counterfeiting everything that God does. God's plan was to give us his life to live in us by his spirit. And if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. You have to have the Holy Spirit living in you. Your body becomes a temple of the Lord. Satan knew that. And so he comes up with his own form of indwelling. It's called demon possession. And so these fallen angels uh, inhabited the children of Adam and Eve as they began to flourish and grow and marry uh, as... um, Morris brings out there were no laws against incest. That was the only thing that was possible at that time. And so the offspring of Adam and Eve, they had to marry their sister. That's the only possible explanation. God did not create anybody else outside of Adam and Eve. And so as they begin to reproduce. Henry Morris says that exponential growth could very easily result in 10 trillion people being alive on the earth when the flood came. 10 trillion! Well, right now today, we've got somewhere between seven and eight billion. That is nothing Compared to 10 trillion. And he said, possibly more. And so, when you think about exponential growth and how the, each of these that were born would get married and have multiple wives, and we don't, we're not told how many, they took as many as they wanted. They were good looking women back then, beautiful. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 6. They were very fair, beautiful. And uh, the Bible makes a big deal over this. I guarantee you Eve was one incredible-looking woman. It says the same thing about Sarah, Abraham's wife. She was beautiful. She was so beautiful that when he goes went out on his trip on two different occasions somebody else warned her same thing was true with Isaac's wife and uh, and Jacob he loved Rachel because she was she was beautiful she was beautiful And so all this, Satan used it because he knew the nature of man. The nature of man is to love himself and what he wants. And so when the flood came, now I'm going to tie this in to Matthew chapter 7. Few there be that find it. How many were saved after the flood? 8 people out of 10 trillion I didn't write the book God did now the disciples come to him and says now when are you coming back and one of the signs that he gave was it's going to be as it was in the days of Noah now let me tell you something folks what I'm trying to do is develop a case that cannot be refuted. And I don't believe it can, not with the Bible. And the case is that the message from heaven is horrible. It's horrible. And right now today, there are very few people sitting in good churches that are genuinely saved. You're talking about the power of unbelief. We better think about it. Pastor Kelly brought a message on that subject years ago. I'll never forget it. The power of unbelief. Just the the title of it got my attention. Just the title. And I sat there and I drank in what was being said. And what it did to me is it caused me to go off and find God afresh and start on this journey of getting away from the collective kind of relationship that I had had for many years in my relationship with God And I began to realize that I was going to die right with myself. And if I did not have a personal relationship with the only one that could save me, then I would never know what it was to have eternal security. But eternal security belongs only to people that realize that the only one that can save them is God Almighty. Salvation is of the Lord. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Folks, as we go out here and witness to people, we should never be surprised at how few find it. And how few will really ever believe what you tell them. They didn't believe when the Savior himself came and told them. He came to his own. His own received him not. They crucified him. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. It's very easy to get discouraged in the in the ministry, but The Lord teaches us how to not be overcome by that. He teaches us how to be encouraged. Paul wrote the Philippians and told them how to be happy in the face of a very horrible message from heaven. He said, be anxious for nothing. I think a great deal of entering into that is realizing that we have to die to everything that we are and look to the only one that is really able to do all things. And the disciples realized that, that the Lord Jesus knew all things, and there was nothing that he couldn't do, nothing. With God, all things are possible. And they lived the rest of their life after understanding these things and were willing to go out and suffer martyrs' deaths because they knew who was in control. And it didn't matter what happened to them. It did not change their persuasion over who was in control of everything, even if they died which is what happened to John the Baptist. People can read about John the Baptist and the inclination is to find fault with God for not going and taking him out of there. I mean, after all, when you put your faith and trust in him, what does that mean? Does that mean that he's going to get you out of that tight spot? No, I'm going to tell you how bad it is it's so bad. The message of this book: when things are going pretty good, that's the most dangerous time in your life. When things are going pretty good, because when things are going pretty good, you don't have to depend upon God. You're not going to be praying to God because everything's going pretty good, and very quickly you will slip over into that lifestyle of living according to your thoughts, your ways, and it'll happen very quickly. When you got money in your pocket, when you're not sick, when you don't have really any apparent health problems, when you do not have people around you, uh, disappointing you that much you can go through periods of time when you can have friends it's not raining the sun is shining there's money in your pocket there's food on the table the scary message of this book is when it gets like that that's when you better beware better watch out I'll tell you what, as I reflect back, and this is just personal testimony, I find that the safest times in my life was when uh, I was overwhelmed, didn't know what to do. That's when the Lord always did his greatest work in my life it's when I was at the end of myself. I didn't have a thought in my mind about what to do, not one. There was nothing I could do. Nothing. And when you look back on it, that's when the Lord was doing his mysterious work. And, and when you look back at it, and I guarantee you, as you're sitting out there listening to these things, you can look back and you will have to acknowledge that this is true, that the Lord did the greatest work in your life in the face of incredible sorrow. The Lord had to allow you to become broken. 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 I guarantee you that would be your testimony. And so when I think about what happened to this woman here, I'm going to tell you this is a bankrupt woman. She was a miserable human being. And God knew it, He knew all about her. He told the disciples. I need to spend some time alone with her. So they um, went away into the city in verse 8 to buy meat. And the Lord was alone with this woman. I have found, at least in my experience, I don't know what yours has been, but I have found that the most profitable conversations I've ever had with anybody about the Lord was when I was alone with them. When they were desperate enough that they wanted to hang on to every word because they were—they didn't know what to do. They did not know what to do. And so for whatever reason, they would come and sit down and thinking maybe that since I studied the Bible a little bit, maybe I could give them some kind of guidance, some kind of help to understand how they could get out of the ditch. And uh, anytime somebody else is around, when it gets down to something that serious, I have found that I need to be alone with that person so that there's not somebody else that has another thought that they want to say, you just have to trust that the Lord is going to be in you, helping you stay on track and him working in you somehow or other to say something to people that will ring their bell and cause them to see what their need is. And... Uh, A person can actually come to this church and sit out there in that congregation and the preacher be up here preaching and Jesus Christ be in them carrying on a private, personal relationship with the person that's sitting out there in the congregation. And that individual will hear a sermon that no one else is even hearing because the Holy Spirit begins to speak to them. I know that's true because it happened to me right here. Sure did. And God spoke to me personally and made it just as clear as a bell what he wanted me to do. So when it comes to this power of unbelief what all does it involve well part of what it involves is what we see in this uh, 28th verse of chapter 4 look at it the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city She left her water pot. What's the significance of that? She left her water pot. I'm telling you, after this conversation with Jesus Christ, she ended up with something that caused her to completely forget her past. And the reason that she originally went to the well Because she was going to a well to get water that she didn't even dig. I mean, it was Jacob's well. He's the one that did the digging. So she couldn't really enter into the value of the water. Jacob could because he invested labor in getting that water. And that's what's going to have to happen to anybody that's ever going to get saved. They're going to have to want it so bad, they're willing to dig for it. They're willing to dig for it. Well, the Lord told her, he said, um, if you drink this water, you're going to thirst again. But I can give you living water. And if you drink of this living water, you'll never thirst again. Ever. And she told the Lord, Well, that's what I want. Give me this water. Well, if she got that living water and would never thirst again, it makes all the sense in the world if she would have left her water pod. That's not hard to understand. But when you try to apply the principle of what is being said here to our own lives, what is the Lord talking about? I'll tell you what He's talking about a radical change. A radical change. So that after this personal meeting with Jesus Christ, you're never the same again. Never. Radical, radical change. One of the radical changes is after this meeting with him, she knew him personally. Personally. There's no collective thing here. It was a personal relationship where Jesus Christ revealed himself to this woman. It tells us in verse 25 the woman, the woman saith unto him, "I know that Messiah cometh which is called Christ, which when he is come, he will tell us all things. And in verse 26, Jesus saith unto her, "I that speak unto thee am he." I just love that statement. I love this passage because it goes right to the heart of what it means to come to know Jesus Christ. It has to be personal, and he has to reveal himself to you. Or you can't know him. You cannot know him. You cannot know him just by reading the Bible or going to church. You can't know him that way. Because it's a spirit relationship. They that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. That's what he said to the woman. You got to get so desperate that you come to me And from within your innermost self, you realize who I am. And for the first time in your life, you get totally honest with God. Totally honest about what he has to say about you. And that is, we deserve to be cast into hell forever. That's exactly what the Bible says. Every single person that has ever been born deserves this. And apart from this radical change, we would kill God is the message of this Bible. At our best state, we would crucify the Son of God. We would do that. Sure would. And that's who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were a type of man at his best state. Now let me tell you something, folks. We've all got family. We've all got friends and acquaintances around about town. Have you tried witnessing to them? Have you begun to pick up on how Unlikely it is that any of them that you witness to are going to actually, genuinely get saved. I'm not trying to be discouraging. But I'll tell you what I am trying to do. And that is impress on people how serious the message of this book is. And how easy you can begin to relax and just think, well, maybe the narrow gate is wider than I thought it was. I don't think so. I don't think it's wider than the way the Lord describes it. He said it was narrow. And He said, Few there be to find it. And so, what do we have to do then as a believer? if we're going to serve the Lord right. Well, we don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to unreasonably offend anybody. But I'll tell you what we do want to do. We want to tell them the truth. And when you do, when you tell somebody the truth, you're going to find out that the numbers get real small on who is going to take the bait and swallow it and say, "This is what I need. I need Christ. I need Jesus Christ." Paul says, "I've become your enemy because I tell you the truth." Folks, this is what's so needed more than anything else in the world. In this day, that is like the days of Noah. When very conceivably, 10 trillion people either died lost or sinned the sin and to death. And it was one or the other. I'm not going to be one of those people that says that no one ever got saved but just Noah and the ones that were in the ark. But I'm going to tell you something. You're pushing it when you take that position that I'm suggesting, and that is that many sin the sin and the death. There were just eight people on the ark. Out of the whole world, eight people. That was it. And so after the flood, only saved people were on the earth. Only saved people. But the power of unbelief was so bad, by the time you get to chapter 11, when God looked down from heaven, the world was so populated that he could He had to confuse the languages of the vast numbers of them. The exponential growth was so great, and they were building a tower that represented another Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. Another spirit and another gospel. And it was man-centered. Let us get together and make us a name for ourselves. How does that parallel with the Lord Jesus who said in his conversation with the Trinity, let us make man in our image? Why? So that we can have unity with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, what was the whole purpose in uh, Genesis chapter 11? Look at it. Look, Look at Genesis chapter 11. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as a Journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to and let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And in verse 6, it says, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, one against me. And they have all one language. It was their thoughts. And this they begin to do. That's their way. And now nothing will restrain them, restrain from them, which they have imagined to do. And so the Trinity says, Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so you have the trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you have man getting together, let us have our own name. And they came up with another name for salvation. When neither is there salvation in any other. Let me tell you something, folks. From Genesis 6 to Genesis 11, how quick did the whole world fall away from God when Noah got off the ark with his three sons and their wives? And Noah's wife. There's eight souls. How long did it take a totally righteous population to digress to this that we just read? Didn't take long. Is the message from heaven kind of scary? I think so. In the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins, the proper way of understanding what the Lord is saying there, because he was teaching the disciples about the last days and how it was going to be, the parable of the ten virgins, five of them were wise <clears throat> and five of them were foolish. But the kicker is, they all had a lamp, which is a symbol of the word of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. They all had a Bible. They had a Bible up under their arm. Going to church, they had a Bible. And so, what you got is a solid church. I'm going to tell you something, folks. You got. You, Pretty solid church if you go to a church and you see that all the people going in with a Bible under their arm. They're serious about their religion. But the Lord is telling us that in the last days, the best churches, the best churches that all have my word, have my word, the King James Bible. That's what those lamps represented. The King James Bible half of the members of that church were foolish they were foolish I mean think about it the Lord said as it was in the days of Noah I think that comes pretty close to describing what's going on there are multitudes of people out here in southern pines they won't be at church at all. They'll be at a bar. They'll be drinking a beer on Sunday morning. They'll play, be playing golf. And you go out here one-on-one trying to talk with people about the Lord, and I'm going to tell you something. You won't hardly find anybody that you can sit down with and talk to about the Lord that want, that's interested in what you have to say. Why is that? Because the message of this Bible, when we're honest about what it's saying, explains it perfectly. And I'm telling you that even in your own home, if you're not careful, you'll find that this is the problem. Our nature is we do not want a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the reason is because you're not going to find many people that will take you up on hating their life. Hating their life. How many people are you going to find that you can talk to that understand that the radical change that the Lord is talking about is a hatred of your present life, a hatred of it? When you run into somebody that really has come to that point that they hate their life, they hate it. Then there might be a possibility that they'll hear what you have to say. Because the Lord Jesus said if you hate if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life, if you hate it, then I'll give you life everlasting. John's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 25. That's where you find it. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. But he that hateth his life in this world, in this world, the same shall keep it unto life everlasting. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 20, we see another illustration of people going through that radical change because the Lord began to call his disciples, and they were fishermen by trade. And in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 20, it says this, they left their nets and followed him. They left their nets and followed him. What does that mean? Is that a radical change? Think about it. They were fishermen. But what did the Lord say to them? He said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's a radical change. Folks, they walked away from their former life. Radical change. That's what you call conversion. Conversion. When a person is willing to say, Lord, What wilt thou have me do? And then you do it because you meant it. What wilt thou have me to do? She left her water pot. The disciples left their nets. If you'll read carefully, Luke chapter 14 the Lord is talking about how important it is to not put family ahead of him. And if you love your father or your mother or your wife or your children or even your own life, you can't be my disciple. You can't be my disciple. And then he went on down as he explained what he was talking about to the disciples. Luke chapter 14, it's an amazing chapter. And he said, Whosoever does not forsake all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Do you want to know why there are few that find it? Folks, I'm telling you, churches all over the place would not touch a message like this they would not touch it but it's the truth and as a result of not telling people the truth large numbers of people will not know what this book is teaching And so if we truly love these people that the Lord brings our way and gives us an opportunity to witness to, if we truly love them, we've got to be willing to tell them the truth. Well, I've sort of left my notes again. Our time is gone. I, I lose sense of time thinking about these things. But I pray that we'll think carefully about these things. Because Calvary Memorial Church and our future and what we're supposed to be doing with what we're learning here in this church is so critical because the Lord is fixing to come. And there's so many people that do not have a real thing. They're not saved. Let's pray. Um, Lance, dismiss us in prayer, brother. Traveling in mercy, and just continue to watch it, and teach us how to live our lives, in Jesus' name, amen.